Well, what do you see? What do you think as you're traveling down the highway and you see that sign, road work, one mile? <laughs> Caution, men at work. I, I don't know about you, but it seems like there's these perpetual construction projects that just never seem to finish. Like 295 comes as an example as you're going up towards Belmar. It's just continuing to add more and widen it. For me, going up 476 up to the Lehigh Valley, at one point that was basically all two lanes above Philly, and now for 10 or 15 miles it's three lanes, and they might eventually take it up to the Lehigh Valley. But it seems like they've been working on it since I moved down here 10 years ago. It just keeps going on because traffic is constant. Population centers are increasing. We drive all the time. Well, tonight we're going to say caution worship at work. The church is always at work when it comes to worship. And in fact, we spend much of our time and resources on worship. Why do we do that? Should we? What does that look like? Now, we, we read from Leviticus chapter 6, and um, we're going to be picking up some thoughts there. Last week, or last sermon, we saw that worship is worth the work because God is present in that holy fire. Worship is set apart as holy and Jesus receives worship as God. And so we should work. We should worship him. Now, what's kind of the why? This week, we're going to look at the, the what. If, if worship is worth the work, then the implication is do it. Work at it, both at the church, but also as people and individuals who desire to come to serve the Lord. That's in gathered worship or, or yourself as you're meeting with God on your own or with your family. And so tonight we're going to look at what this passage teaches us on how we should work at worship. But first, I want to say, what is the proper place of worship? I don't know. Recently, we've, we've been talking a lot about worship. You see that uh, a theme in both Pastor Preter, my, my preaching, and that's what we're going to be doing man camp on, warrior worship. We've been talking a lot about worship. What, what is it? Where's its place? Well, you say it's... Worship is the beginning, and maybe the end, but it's not the whole story of the Christian life. And, and there is an objection. I was a, a youth leader in my pre, pre, previous church, and I actually heard this question. Well, why, why worship at all? Why, why, sh- why couldn't we spend that? Why shouldn't we spend that time and money out there helping poor people? Now, that could be just a smokescreen. I mean, the question you could ask, well, are you spending the rest of your time and resources helping poor people? Uh, but I think there was also maybe, in that case, an honest question. Where should we be spending our resources? Well, let me give you an analogy. What if a husband and wife has been married for 10 years? They have four kids, and they do all kinds of good things for the family. They have strong finances. They're all healthy. They're both involved in careers. Their kids go to good schools. And yet the husband and wife never spend any time with each other. Never. Just outside of the family. Is that healthy? Well, you to some extent, you'd expect a dates or anniversary trips, or at least sometimes my parents would just go shopping together. That's all they could do. But that was they. On the other hand, what if you had a husband and wife, same ten years, four kids, and they spent two months a year traveling the world with their kids at home, and five nights a week they had a babysitter and they were out doing things on their own? Well, you'd say, well, they've taken their most important relationship in the marriage and neglected the rest of their responsibilities. Well, this is something how we look at worship. Worship is first in our priority because God is first. And, and by the way, we all worship. We all assign worth to something. That's who we are as image makers. And God as creator is worthy of our highest worship. And so worshiping God should be our first priority. You, you, you build your week around Sunday. You could structure your day around worship, even if it's a little bit in the morning and evening with your family or by yourself. 
Uh, Leviticus is an excellent place to show this in Scripture. If you've been here for the sermons, one thing you can't get away from is that worship is important. Right? And chap- a book of 27 chapters, the first 16, climaxing on the Day of Atonement, which is the center of the Pentateuch, is all about how to worship God properly. And so worship must be our first priority as a church. You get to worship, just like a husband and wife get to enjoy each other. And yet that first question, why, why not just help people, does, does raise a point. It could be possible to focus on worship so much in your resources that you ignore or disobey other commands that God has given you, or you ignore the rest of the Christian life. Right, the three areas of the Christian life, as we see in the Great Commission, are, are worship, discipleship, and mission, all in the context of the church community. And so Leviticus will actually cover, in some ways, these elements. Worship is first, but then a little different in the Old Testament. But you will see the second half is about holiness, and that includes loving your neighbor. In the Old Testament, that would mean attracting and drawing the other nations to God, seeing him as holy. And we will talk about those things later in the book. So we're going to get there. But it is appropriate to talk and reflect much on worship, because that's what God does. Well, with that in mind, what does this passage teach you and me about worship? Well, first of all, heavenly worship requires earthly details. Now, go back to that passage 6, 8 through 13. I mentioned this two weeks ago, that five times it says that you are not to let the fire go out. Do you remember the significance of the fire? At Aaron's ordination, God will light the fire himself. It symbolizes his holy presence and his glory and his beauty. And, and this will be the fire that comes, we said, the, to me, the daily order of worship, which had the, the daily burnt offerings and the drink offerings, where the priest would go then and trim the lamps and offer the incense and then come out and bless the people. And so what you see here is God initiates worship, but then he requires something of us in the daily goings-on. Now, this is not always the case. Can you think of other times in the Bible where God starts and continues a fire? The burning bush. Moses is attracted to this bush that burns but is not consumed. It's, 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 it's not using fuel like a normal bush would. God's pillar of fire at night in the, in the Exodus, his presence with his people. God can supernaturally keep a fire going. That is not a problem for him here. But, but, but here, God requires his people, in this case his priests, to provide wood for offering the sacrifices and then disposing the ashes, tending the fire so that it doesn't go out, it continues to burn. And so what you see here is he, he requires, he, he allows human actions to be part of worship. And that includes the, the logistics, as we'd say in the army, the, the preparation, all the details of worship. I mean, just think about, in a desert, what kind of work it would take to get enough wood to keep uh, an altar of that kind burning constantly. Now, the, the priests had the Levites to help them, but it took a lot of manpower. It took a lot of planning not to let that fire go out. Now, why would the Lord do that? Why does he require human effort when, when he could do it himself? He certainly could. We talked about the fire. We talked about God provided manna in the wilderness. Jesus provides bread. He, he could do these things. He has sometimes. Why would he require human effort and work? Well, in soccer camp, the, the older kids learned about the missionary C.T. Studd. And he had a great faith in the Lord that, that puts many of us to shame. A wonderful example, but sometimes it was a little bit naive. And there was, when he was first in China, he was going with Hudson Taylor, and he had to learn Mandarin Chinese. 
and he had prayed when there were a whole bunch of rats on his ship, and the rats went away, and he said, God took care of the rats. I know what I'll do. I'm going to pray that I can learn Mandarin, that God will just pop it into my mind. Um, our kids were not very impressed with that. They, they seemed to be already very rooted cessationalists and Presbyterians, understanding how the means of grace work and, and how God uses means. But Hudson Taylor, when he got to Hudson Taylor, he said, how, how's the Chinese going? And he said, well, um, I prayed and it didn't work too well. He said, yeah. He said, you know what? Even if it would, even if I could wave my hand and give you Chinese, I wouldn't do it. And he said, here's why, CT. Because it's as you wrestle with the language that you learn to love the people and the culture. You see, there's something about being image bearers of God that gives dignity to work. And God uses good work to shape and mold you. Work is not a four-letter word. It's a blessing. And so if you do things in the work of worship with the right attitude, that that works on your heart. It it, it prepares you to to appreciate it, to to rejoice in it. And think about how much work well-crafted worship takes I mean, starting with the pastors and elders but if you look at all the all the little details trickling down to the members of the congregation there's there's a lot of work that went on and of course you think about the pastors and writing sermons and the worship but think about the other daily aspects i mentioned some of these last time but i'm going to say it again people who type up and fold the bulletin ushers and greeters musicians deacons who prepare communion nursery sound Building upkeep, people who plant flowers and weed and mow the lawn. You could dig even deeper into the trustees' work, even congregational meetings. These are all part of preparing for worship. And just because worship is spiritually minded, that we've talked about being lifted up into the heavenly places today, doesn't mean that the details don't matter. In fact, we show God that he's important by attending to the details. So be encouraged. If you're doing the same job over and over again, why are you doing it? Well, for the glory of God. And so God's people can worship well. And I start by mentioning these little things because it's easy to overlook them or to think that they're somehow inferior. But, but these are important in the matters of worship. Well, let's look at two other ways that this passage in Leviticus can teach us about worship. Worship requires planning and structure. Now, if you read all the the chapter 6 to 8 to 7, and we talked about that order of worship, that daily to meet, which means continually doing over and over again. What you see is that God requires careful, thoughtful, deliberate worship. How many times you heard, read, have you heard over and over again, repeated, or with similar variations, and you shall do this, and you shall do this throughout the book? There's, there is often a precise order laid down as the people approach God, the, the order in which to offer sacrifices. The ways to offer each sacrifice. And this should tell you that that God is concerned about the quality and thoughtfulness of worship. Now, in the New Testament, praise God, Jesus is our sacrifice. We do not offer animal sacrifices in order to make us right to come before God. And so there isn't an inspired worship service. We don't have a Leviticus in the New Testament, so to say. We have some more freedom, but there are still much you can learn. There's much you can learn about thoughtful worship and how to make it intentional. And this only makes sense. If you come to worship God, who is the creator of the universe, you're to offer him all of what you have, even if it's a little bit as you stagger in after a week of soccer camp and funerals and and what else. This is the way you show God that he's important and worthy of worship, that you pay attention. When I first met Elizabeth, I had known her for a couple months, and I decided I was going to get her a Valentine's Day card. So I actually made my own. 
I designed it on the printer, I printed it out in color, I think I printed it out a couple times because it smudged the first time, and I, I folded it just right, and, and I, I wrote carefully, and if, if you know, if you've seen my handwriting, my handwriting was the font that would be called Chicken Scratch, right? It's not very neat, but I was like just almost calligraphy, making it nice and neat, and, and my dad, who knew I'm not good at these things, and how hard I was looking, he looked and he said, Andy's in love, right? There's, there's something there. He's showing by the attention he's paying how special his relationship is. Well, that's the way it is with worship. There's two paragraphs I'm going to read from uh, Gordon Wenham's commentary on Leviticus. I found these really helpful about how we should approach worship. Just listen to this. Jesus said that God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And it has become commonplace to contrast spirit and form as if they were incompatible in worship. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life is that text out of uh, is, is out is that text out of context. Second Corinthians three six can be used to justify slapdash leading of services and other Christian activities. Spontan, spontaneity and lack of preparation is equated with spirituality. Leviticus six to nine denies this. Care and attention to detail are indispensable to the conduct of divine worship. God is more important, more distinguished, worthy of more respect than any man. Therefore, we should follow his injunction to the letter if we, re- in, if we respect him. And he goes on to say, if you go to a concert, you expect the musicians to have practiced, have things worked out. And so as we come to worship, we too should work at the form as we're going on. That's, that's what your pastors are doing as we're prayerfully preparing worship services and sermons. That's what your musicians are doing. It takes a lot of work. I know you come and you just hear the music play, but you could pull back the curtains on that one. The meetings that are going on right now to to have the, the orchestra and everything lined up and using the proper music. There's a lot of work that goes on as we think about having an orderly and thoughtful worship service. Let's apply this in two ways. First of all, if you're not doing these types of preparation, you have a direct hand, pray for those who are. Pray for your musicians, pray for your pastors as, as we prayerfully prepare sermons. But second of all, I want you to realize that what we do in worship is very deliberate and intentional. Now, if you've noticed, uh, Faith Church, and for that matter, most OP churches, have a very different style of worship than what is popular in many of the fast-growing churches today. I've experienced this style of worship in the army, in the contemporary service, and at its best, it goes a little bit like this. Trying to present it fairly, there's an hour block, there's an intro, and then maybe 30 minutes of of solid praise songs. Maybe a little jamming, maybe not, depending on who's doing it, with the the worship leader leading it through, and and then a short prayer, and then a passionate 30-minute sermon, and then send you back out into the world with, you know, the praise band going in the back, and it sends you out. now, I don't know if you've noticed, but that's not Faith Church. So why not? Now, if this is the successful model, why not? Well, some of it's our personality. We need to be who we are. But we also see more going on in worship than songs and sermons, as important as those things are. Worship is that back and forth where God calls and we respond. And we intentionally structure our worship going back to the pattern of the early church, I think at least to the 400s, if you look at the history. And the beauty of the structure is that it tells the gospel story. The the glorious God calls you into his presence. You're confronted by his word. You experience your sin and you confess it. You are assured of your forgiveness. 
You respond in songs and, and prayer and giving tithes and God instructs you in his word and you respond in praise and he sends you out with his blessing. There is a gospel movement to our worship order. Now, this isn't inspired. Like there's, there's nothing that says you have to work this way. But I hope you see that our goal is, is thoughtful, reflectful worship that's both deep and joyful. And, and we do this deliberately walking in the path of the churches before us. This is helpful. And, and so worship require, requires planning and structure. And I spent some time on that because I, we can acknowledge we are different from most of the churches out there. And so I pray that you can appreciate what we're doing and why we're doing it. We're not just doing it because that's what the last generation did, but we see great value in that. The last way this passage shows you how to work at worship is providing resources. Worship requires appropriate resources. Just like the fire needed the wood to keep burning, God's church requires his people's resources. Now, yes, that is financial giving, but also time and joyful participation in worship. Now, from Scripture, I want you to see how your resources support the building and also the people who do the specialized parts of worship. Let's go ahead and read Leviticus chapter 7. We'll just read the first 10 verses. This again gives a flavor of the principle here. This is the law of the grain, the guilt offering. It is most holy. It is the place where they kill the burnt offering. They shall kill the guilt offering and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the tail that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. The priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he's offered. Never grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. Now, we have talked previously with the tribute offering in chapter two about how the Lord provides for his people from the giving of his uh, his congregation. But it's here again. So I want to spend just a little bit of time in this. You hear see again how through the worship here, the priests are practically supported. They, they have the meat, the, the grain, uh, the skins. And, and so what we get from this is the principle that we are so to support our pastors. As it says in our calls, pastors are to be free from worldly care. Now, I want to let you know, sometimes as a subtext, is, Andrew, is Pastor Andrew saying something here? No. Faith Church has cared for their pastors wonderfully. I'm, I'm bringing it up because it's in the scripture. In fact, there were many times when I was in seminary and I would hear some pastors talk about other denominations. And I just thought, I'm, I'm grateful to be Presbyterian. They're no perfect denomination, but I was, I was impressed by how people care for their pastors in, in the Presbyterian church. You may have heard of others, other churches that say, you know, we, we, we pay our pastor a pittance to keep him humble. Well, I'm grateful you don't do that here. We say we want to keep our pastors free from all worldly care so that they can focus on ministry. And it's good to remember that. And, and perhaps if you go to a new church to, to keep that attitude. Um, think about this. Pastors do make sacrifices. They, they specialize in a lower paying field. They, 
They could certainly make more in a different job. I, I know a pastor who went into the ministry, spent a lot of time and effort, and then uh, got out of the ministry and, and was very delayed in his career and had difficulty earning. And so there are sacrifices and should recognize that. Now, pastors do that gladly. The Apostle Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we shall be content. Um, but as a church, we should protect our pastors and make sure they're not struggling financially. Makes our pastors more productive. But it also says... We value your work. Um, again, been very blessed by Faith Church. But how much should you pay your pastors? Um, a general rule of thumb is that it should probably be as much as the average salary in the congregation. So they're among equals. And this goes to the same way that we should be generous to our missionaries. When the Acostas come, we want to give them a love gift. When we, when Firm from in Christ comes, we want to support them both from, from our offerings and, and additional gifts that we might give as individuals. So certainly, God delights when you give to the work of those who are specializing in ministry, but then let's talk about our church building a little bit. Now, in Leviticus, there aren't instructions for the church building. That was in the tabernacle, and we read in the passage where God appointed men to build the tabernacle. Not only did there were people who had to do the work, but they needed resources, and God's people gave freely to that work. Now, the church building requires resources, too. If you look at our budget at the end of the year, you see the upkeep, you see the maintenance, you see the utilities. So let's ask, what what does the role of the church building play today in worship? Let's first of all say it's not as important as it was in the tabernacle. There's that beautiful verse in the Gospel of John where John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That, that word dwelt is tabernacle. Jesus lives in us. In that sense, we are the church. We are the tabernacle. And yet, so the church building, it's not the church, but the building is a wonderful resource for worship and ministry. Maybe five years ago, my then chaplain endorser, Chaplain Brigadier General Lee, came and visited me as he, he would go throughout and visit his chaplains. He was in the area. And we stopped at Point 40 Diner, had a meal and talk, and then he came and he saw the building and took a tour and he said, I can't tell you how many churches would love to have a building like this. So this, this is a wonderful resource for, for missions, for, for worship, things like soccer camp, learn. So how, many, how much of a resources should we invest in our building? Well, you notice in the Old Testament, it was special. It was above and over the top. People were, were, were giving huge, vast sums because that adornment was reflecting the glory of God. Now, there's, there's no clear commandment in the New Testament, but I think we Protestants may have thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it came, comes to the beauty of church buildings. And there's, there was a backlash against beautiful buildings and art, a lot of that had to do with, with veneration of icons, which we, which we would not do. But... In principle, looking from Exodus and, and the worship here and other places, we should make our place of worship attractive according to our ability. Do you remember what King David said? I think he had the right attitude. He built a palace, and then he said, why should I live in a palace of cedar and the Lord dwell in a tent? Now, now God said to David, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build a house for you, so just hold your horses. But, but David had the right idea that, well, wait a second, something's out of order here. I'm living in this beautiful house, and the Lord's living in this tent. Now, this means that church buildings, they're going to look different from congregations. I mean, a church in Africa, Bush, might be a simple hut or shed. In fact, when C.T. Studd started his Africa mission and thousands of people came, they built 
a large grass pavilion that could hold a thousand people, and that was their building. But wouldn't it be odd if a well-to-do group of Christians who lived in beautiful homes built a church that had a bare concrete floor and corrugated aluminum for, for, for the walls? That, that would seem to, to be out of order. Um, I'll give you an experience that I went to River Oaks Presbyterian Church. It was the church we went to in Tennessee just this past June when we went to the chaplain's conference. And one of the things I noted when I stepped into the sanctuary was its tasteful elegance. It, it, it wasn't extravagant. It wasn't as if they had poured mounds and mounds of money, but you could tell it was thoughtful in its design. It was very clear that the floor was attractive. It, there was just a, 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 a kind of an, a soaring aspect to the roof. I, I sent a, a video of it to my sisters who are artists. And there was something there that said, this, this building, something special happens here. In the same way, I'm grateful for our building. It's, it's not gold-lined, but it's, it's well-kept, and, and it's attractive. Some of you literally built it with your own hands, so there's, there's some, some specialness there. And we need to make the, not make the mistake of idolizing a church building. There was a church, I just heard of a church that split over a pickleball court. Um, there's a, 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 a slight majority that pushed that through, and they decided that's what we need for ministry. And there, there was a quarter of the church that just fell on her and said, we're out of here, forget it. Um, there was much more to it than that. But you can, you can have arguments and disagreements that, that really bring dishonor to Christ. We should never hold it tightly either. There was an Anglican church, a building, I think, at least a century or two old. And they were going to leave their denomination, and it was clear that legally they were not going to be able to take their building with them. There were people in that congregation that had grown up for four generations and worshipped there. And they said, you know what? This building is God's building, but it's not the church. If we can't worship here as the church, we will go elsewhere. And so we don't hold it tightly, but you should think about it as God's resource. It is worth investing in, it's worth upgrading in, and so... I encourage you to care with the, with the proper amount for God's building because it helps us worship. And think about that as you're tithing, as you're giving your money to the work of the Lord. I, I am giving my money partly so that this building can be functional so we can do the work of ministry. Think about that. Come to work days. Invest your time. Bring your kids to work days. Help them to see that the building is important because it's work, part of the work of the ministry. So we've said caution. Worship at work. We've explored some of the little ways that God calls us, sometimes as pastors, sometimes as a congregation, to be part of the human work that propels worship. I pray that you can get excited about the details because your eyes are on that bigger prize. You may have heard of the story of the three men who were in the medieval times laying bricks, and you come to one and say, what are you doing? Doing this, what do you think I'm doing? This is back-breaking work. I'm laying bricks. And there's another guy a little further down. What are you doing? He says, well, you know, I'm building a wall. And then there's the third guy, and he's just going all out. Now, what are you doing? He says, don't you know? We are crafting a cathedral. And he had that bigger view that the little things, brick by brick by brick, was going towards a larger purpose. And it doesn't matter your role as you play the part. I pray you can get excited as you plan your schedule around Sundays to make it first. As you drag yourself and maybe your kids out of bed every week, as, as you change diapers in the nursery or transpose music, as you turn off the lights when everyone's gone, as you give money to the Lord, as you're teaching your kids to sit still, as you engage in that back and forth worship, you are keeping the fire going. 
in all of this, before, during, and after, these little mundane things have value and purpose because of their goal. Thoughtful, deliberate worship that honors our great God. And so press on. Do not grow weary. Work at worship. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your gospel is incredible. As we had sung in the songs, we look forward to the life in the new heavens and the new earth. We also thank you that you care about the little mundane details of life. You yourself did it. You tied your sandal. You walked along the road. You worked as a carpenter. And you call us to those things as honorable as well. Not because our eyes are just focused on this day, but, but because we are creatures that are here and still looking to the new heavens and the new earth. And so would you give each one of us the joys we go out this week to do our own work, but also as we think about what part we play in worshiping you here as your gathered people in this building, as Jesus' church in Elmer. For we pray this in his name. Amen.